Welcome to another edition of the Dementia Care Partner Talk Show. Now, here's dementia care expert Tifa Snow and your host, Greg Phelps. This podcast is brought to you by Tover, the creators of the Tover Tobble. The Tover Tobble promotes more joyful social connections for seniors living with dementia through its wide range of interactive games. Developed with seniors and care professionals, Tover Tobble's games are designed to suit different stages of dementia and times of day. Discover more about the Tover Tobble and the power of purposeful play at www.tover.care forward slash US. Hello and welcome to Tifa Snow's Dementia Care Partners podcast brought to you by Positive Approach to Care. My name is Greg Phelps and as usual I'm joined by dementia care expert Tifa Snow and Tifa our topic for today is dementia and end of life palliative mm-hmm. care. So what is that and Ooh, what what okay. could we tell people about this? I mean it's <laughs> not the cheeriest of subjects. No. So here's the tricky part for me, Greg, is when we initiate a diagnosis, we we know what we're working with is a dementia. Um, One of the things we want to consider is, are we at that point looking at comfort, cure, maintenance, rehab? Um, What exactly should we be looking at at the early signs that we're living with a dementia in our lives? Um, And then as we progress through the condition, when does it switch to we're really, really committed to comfort care? And I I would say, you know, this is the tricky part. Palliative care, comfort care has a real limited and negative connotation. And it should be much, actually, most care that we seek should have a comfort element to it. Um, yeah, we can put up with pain and discomfort for short windows, but the goal should be I'm going to be more comfortable. I'm going to be more satisfied. I'm going to be happier if we actually do what we're doing, then it's going to result in a better outcome for me and hopefully also for you. But at least for me, I'm feeling more comfortable. Um, So at nearing the end of life, this is where there's often assumptions made rather than assessments done. Because what we're talking about is, well, what does the end of life look like for a human being that is living with dementia? And the answer is, well, you have to know the human being. You have to know what else has gone on for them. You've got to know if they have acute illnesses or chronic illnesses. or um, We've got to know where are they in the process of their brain change. Are they very early, but due to cancer, they're also experiencing you know, a, an end of life event? Or are they very late in their dementia? As a matter of fact, they're in a pearl state. They're sort of inside the shell of their body. Their their reflexes are intense and and protective. Um, Their ability to spend time in the world outside their body is limited. Um, They have used up all their resources. They're dehydrating. They're um, malnourished, if you would, but they're using up everything in the sh- in the system so that when they do leave, they leave an empty cabinet, not sort of one that's been well stocked and is causing problems. So having said all that, where does that leave us with comfort, given, you know, when somebody's living with dementia, how do we know how uncomfortable or how much pain they're in if we don't have ways of connecting and communicating? So 
that would bear uh, the question that most people would have is how can you possibly communicate with somebody who is in a pearl state? And I guess maybe we should pause and you can give a brief summary of what the pearl state actually is. I know it's hard yeah. to do it briefly, but uh, yeah, yeah. we use well, the term and we know what we're talking about, but others may not. Right. And so my body and my brain and myself is more internally uh, focused. And I may be minimally aware of the world outside my body. But in those moments, to the best of what we know, I am not aware out there. I am more aware in here. Now, if someone is trying to connect with me, it may take me 5, 10, 30 seconds to get the info in. And the, the understanding we have at this point in time is one of the better strategies is if I haven't lost my hearing due to other reasons, my sense of sound is actually, I often pick up on those. And what I can notice is familiar versus unfamiliar, comfortable versus uncomfortable. So getting sound in and then touch, but what we know is quick moving touch can often startle or cause my brain to go, oh, geez, what is that? that that's scary, that's, that's not okay. Or forceful movements or surprising against gravity movements could make it really hard for me. Because what's happening is my brain is no longer running my body very well. And one of the things it's not good at is relaxing my body when I don't need to use muscles. And so one of the common phenomena is contractures or shortening and drawing in of the arms, of the legs, um, of the back, like curling forward into a fetal position, which is the position we arrive in the world. And then often toward the end, we will we will exit the world. And so um, the ability to chew and swallow is disappearing. The interest in the ability to even absorb, if I were to chew and swallow and put something in the system, peristalsis, management of bowel and bladder. I mean, and that's one of those reasons why we will often say, well, letting someone not be hungry, not be thirsty, but if they're not seeking food or drink, that may actually be the signals that their body is offering out that it's getting close to time to say enough. I, I, I don't have anything more to do or to offer. I'm comfortable not having food in or drink in because I don't know what to do with it anyway. So they're not dying of hunger or thirst. They're dying and they're not thirsty and they're not hungry. And, you know, for those of us who are living, it's a really hard thing to comprehend that I may not be thirsty or hungry and I'm not struggling. What I may have is a dry mouth. And so keeping my mouth moist might be important. Um, I do get stiff laying in one position, but helping me shift slowly and gently might really be more comfortable than flipping. Ah, ah. So if I hear sort of sounds of distress or I see evidence, <laughs> the grinding of teeth, pinching, spitting, trying to punch or kick, that may very well be an indication of what you're doing is either scaring me, angering me, or, or it might be actually hurting me. Um, and so when we're looking at comfort care, that's, I'd say that's evidence it's not comfortable. So this is one of the more difficult times for families because everything else in life sort of leads us to rush in and intervene. And we're not really taught how to let go. Mm. Yeah, because there's a there's a big difference between giving up on someone and just saying, well, I don't even know she knows I'm here and saying, I know I'm here. I know I can be present. I can 
I can look at the situation and say, I wonder if they're staying because I am here, or I wonder if they are going to be able to go because I'm here. If I offer reassurance, if I say, you know, you have done all that you needed to do, you are an amazing human being and all that we didn't get to, it's okay. Cause I can let that go because what we got to and what we did was so amazing. You helped me be the person that I am and I will do my best moving forward to help and support others. So really acknowledging what we've been to each other. I don't know how much you can take in. And I'm not going to assume because we have had time after time, I have experienced where people suddenly in that moment say, I love you. Or, you know, we did a good job. And so suddenly out of nowhere, someone who has not spoken at all in over a year suddenly is able to put together something, look at me and say something. And I've had equal numbers of folks who simply quietly exit life and move forward. So, I mean, I think that's the hardest thing is getting family members comfortable with the process of dying. And it may involve some... And that could feel really uncomfortable for you, but it's actually the brain and body's way of saying, okay, now I've gotten rid of the food and the drink. Now, how do I get rid of the O2 situation? How do I let go of needing oxygen? And that's a hard one because we come into the world gasping for breath and screaming. And often we're thinking, well, you know, I don't want them to do that. And it's like, well, for some people, they would rather be aware and, and do that than they would be drugged, not able to feel anything and slip away because they aren't able to be conscious. So, I, you know, it's really highly individual. And unfortunately, we're not really good at thinking about this stuff before the crisis of it happening. And so we are shoved into places and spaces of discomfort and pain. And that's unfortunate for all of us because overreaction is not particularly beneficial to anyone, I don't think. Well, I guess I was going to say unfortunately, but that's that's not the right word. The The end comes for all of us at some particular point. And in a lot of cases, I've heard from people saying, well, we stepped out of the room for a couple of minutes. We came back in and she, he had passed. So yeah. is that because they can actually make a conscious decision to leave when the family is like, my brain doesn't comprehend that. I know. Isn't it an interesting thing? I've been involved enough to believe that there are some people who need you. I can't leave you. I really can't leave you if you're here. If you walk away from me, then I can leave. And I have had people, I don't know how conscious and how primitive that reaction is, but when I'm alone, I can step forward into the next space that I'm to enter or leave this space. But for some people, I absolutely need you holding my hand and being close to me. And so family members will hold on and hold on, you know, because they're seeking a connection, but it might actually make it hard for the person to leave them because mothers don't leave children and spouses don't leave others. And so when you go to take care of that one need, like you just have to go to the bathroom, um, it feels like you missed something. And in fact, you did exactly what you were supposed to do and needed to do so I could let go and go because I knew you were living and it's time for me to stop doing that. And I will always be with you, but not physically. 
Now, now you fly all over the world teaching mm -hmm. different things, but this is not one that you could fly to San Francisco or Melbourne or London and mm -hmm. give a course on dying, because I don't think a whole bunch of people would uh, sign up for that. So yeah. how do you get the message out? I, can you do this via Zoom for people? Can you Zoom class or individual? Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we get the word out? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, when people tried the death cafes, <laughs> it was like, ooh, that's a dance. So I think sometimes what we talk about is, you know, like helping us figure out as we're progressing further in late state care, we talk about late state, amber, ruby, pearl, we start thinking ahead to what might it look like for this to be done and how, how that might happen. And so we tend to lead into it from living to not living rather than we're, we're anticipating the death. So it's, it's just a little different, I think, in how we approach it. And that we can do virtually. We could do it through a recording initially or maybe through a consultation with a one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe we have little clips on YouTube. Maybe we pull a family together and talk a little bit about their journey to date. Um, and so sometimes I'll have people work with me and send me videos of what's going on right now and what they're trying to do. And if I have ways or strategies to make it more comfortable, less painful for what we are trying to do to care for the, for the shell, for the body until it's time for us to leave it. And I've been really successful online helping people. How do you help her roll to the side so we can change something? Or what product do we switch to so that we're not doing this so often? Um, so there's lots of really practical questions about this that we should be asking. And um, sometimes you have to come in sideways so people can get comfortable with the whole concept of until it's done, I'm alive. But once I'm not alive, that part's done. Tipa, do you have uh, consultants that have experience in this? Because it's a very specific, narrow mm -hmm. lane that you're driving in. Yeah, we have some consultants who are particularly skillful at this and are particularly interested and supportive in this and have done numbers of interactions with folks. And so the comfort that they have in, in being responsive and being curious and being compassionate regardless and helping families and or individuals rejig where they think they are and pause and try something. Um, we've got a good group of people that are specifically tuned in to late life issues and end of life concerns and are comfortable talking about it and can get other people comfortable. Um, so maybe painting somebody's nails, if you haven't seen them in a while, but that's something you're good at, maybe one family member presenting the person's hand so that fingernails can be painted and then talking about getting nails painted and then painting nails might be something that works for people. And all I'm asking is let's not do it for me. Okay. I'm making that real clear. That's an advanced directive. No nails, no nail work for me. I mean, you might need to trim them back. I understand that, but don't be putting polish on mine. Tifa, thank you very much. Thanks everybody. You've been listening to the Dementia Care Partners podcast. For more information on this or any other dementia-related topic, go to tipasnow.com.